Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, it is uh, my pleasure to host Brittany Cooper to discuss her new book, Beyond Respectability, The Intellectual Thought of Race Women. This is a book published by the University of Illinois Press. This is a complex and important exploration of gender and race, bringing forward the mostly under-examined work by African-American intellectual women across the span of the last century. The book knits together the intellectual work by race women, which is not always located in the same places where we often find intellectual work, but I will let Brittany explain her thoughts on both the intellectual genealogy of ideas and intellectual geography of the work of African-American women. But first, I want to ask Dr. Brittany Cooper to tell us a little bit about herself, how she came to this project, which she notes is a little ironic given the street in her neighborhood while she was in college. Um, Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, So I came to this project because when I went to college at Howard University, which is a significant site uh, in the intellectual genealogy and geography of Black intellectuals, uh, more generally, I learned a lot about Black male intellectuals, but very little about Black female intellectuals. Um, And so when I went to graduate school some years later, And I began to come into my own kind of feminist consciousness rooted in the work of African-American women. Then suddenly, as I was reading the biographies of many of the women that I came to write about in this book, I realized their connection to the place I had gone to college. Uh, And because of that, I wondered about this gap in my own understanding of my history and in my own understanding of the the thinkers and theorists who had shaped the landscape of Black ideas. Uh, And so that led me on a quest both to sort of put together um, a story that was personally relevant for me, but also a story that I think is intellectually relevant for us all. Uh, And one of the things that really brought that to light was that when I was a student at Howard University, there is uh, a street near um, Howard University in a neighborhood called LaDroit Park uh, that uh, one of the streets are, is named Anna Julia Cooper Circle, uh, and it is where the great 19th and early 20th century intellectual Anna Julia Cooper lived, and her house is still there. But I had no idea who she was or that she was such an important figure. Um, and these days, now that I do know about her, she was one of the first African-American women to receive uh, her PhD. Uh, she received it in French from the Sorbonne in 1925, uh, but she was the principal of the M Street School in Washington, D.C. But she's also one of the first black women to write a series of political essays uh, dealing with issues of race and gender and education uh, and many other topics as well. And so she really creates a sort of intellectual space for black women that hadn't existed before her. Uh, And the kind of cool personal connection is she is the very first black woman, Dr. Cooper. Uh, And so it was really cool to know, uh, you know, as a, as a future black woman, Dr. Cooper, uh, who the first was and that her intellectual legacy was so prodigious and impactful. 
I, I love that you are the next Dr. Cooper. Um, that is that is really awesome. Um, yes. So at the very start of your book, you pose a number of questions that open up the framework of your research and the study that you did. Um, and, and so I just wanted to sort of go through the three questions that you posed right at the start of your introduction and let you talk about the connection that these questions have and the sort of broad thesis of your book itself. So you you note that what does it mean and what has it meant to be a black female intellectual, which you've already referenced in terms of, you know, how you sort of started this project. But you follow that up by what does it mean to be a race woman um, and what and where are the sites of race women's becoming? And you note that the second two questions to some degree need to follow the first one, but the first one also needs to be investigated. Can you explain about how your work takes up these three questions and what it opens up as you do take up these questions? Sure. So, you know, part of part of what I'm trying to do here is both to recoup uh, Black women as serious thinkers. So we have a really long tradition, both in academic histories of Black women um, and in, in histories of Black intellectual thought, of saying that we value Black women as intellectuals. But this curious thing happens in more general conversation, where over and over again, and even in, in many of the academic tomes, right, that we go back to the to the great race men, to Du Bois, to Washington, to Alexander Cromwell, uh, then later to King, uh, it's Malcolm X and, and some uh, Marcus Garvey uh, in between uh, those groups and some others. Uh, and so I knew that these men were not talking in a vacuum, but I wondered why we could name many of the women in my book. So Anna Julia Cooper has been a figure in uh, black in, in black letters for a couple of decades at this point. Uh, and there has been some work on, done on her, as has um, Ida B. Wells, who I talk about in intermittent moments throughout this book, uh, and Mary Church Terrell and Fanny Barrier Williams. These are not names that if I say them to a group of black women historians that they would not know. But typically when we talk about them, we talk about their sort of vast record of accomplishments in terms of building institutions. And we don't often think about the kinds of rich ideas that they're producing in writing over a co- over the course of several decades. Uh, and so when I began to be acquainted with that work, I had this fundamental question about why we weren't seeing them as thinkers and theorists and why all of that work, we've called it activism, we called it organizing, we called it institution building, but we didn't see them as the kind of folks that we would typically teach in a course on Black intellectual thought, which is a course that I teach. So that was one sort of question that I had. And to me, I mean, it really comes down to a sort of basic idea, which is that it's deeply sexist uh, and that the way to sort of write against it was to provide receipts and to show that if you looked at the kinds of writing these women were doing, that not only are they informing the ideas of the race men of their day who are who are getting more shine and who are more public, but they also have lots to say about not just how to ameliorate racism, right, or not just how to address sexism, but about operations of the nation's state, about how you build strong Black communities, um, and about intellectual work and production and the conditions of it uh, themselves. And so, um, so, that, so that became really important. And then I wanted to know, though, 
kind of what environments shaped them? Where were they doing this work? Who were they in conversation with? And what kinds of personal conditions shaped their lives? How did Black women who are coming of age and who are doing intellectual work in the 30 years after the end of slavery navigate personal lives? How do they navigate marriage? How do they navigate relationships with Black men in the public sphere in a moment where um, there are all of these dictates for Black women to be respectable, um, to to be, you know, to be a, a, a sort of upstanding exemplary kind of idea of womanhood because of racism and sexism and the fear that if they were seen as lacking moral character, then they would frankly be um, more likely to be victims of rape. So those sorts of things were not, were, were, were charged the kind of atmosphere in which Black women were negotiating the public sphere. Uh, and so I wanted to know how they managed to become these kinds of intellectuals when men still had very conservative notions about who women should be and what did it mean to be a woman and what did it mean to be a man. Um, and so then, you know, last I sort of try to construct the conversations that they're in, the, you know, where are the places that they come together to talk with each other? And then what are the nature of the conversations that they're having with each other? And what are the kinds of concerns and priorities um, that are shaping Black women's lives? What are the things that really matter to them in terms of a racial justice agenda uh, and a gender justice agenda? And I think you can find really clear evidence of this if you look at um, the National Association of Colored Women, which is a place that I argue is a key sight uh, in the in the in shaping and making race women as intellectuals uh, because it's the site of the club women's movement um, which is a movement of so it's not unlike the um, white club women's movement where women in local communities would have clubs about all kinds of things everything from card playing to mothering to uh, doing sort of social work projects and so every year they would come together in these conferences uh, to talk as individual clubs and they formed these huge national bodies and from those national bodies they would put they would have their own sorts of political agendas and social agendas that they would go back to their local communities and try to produce and so um, the black club women's movement uh, and its mother organization the national association of colored women uh, had the most black women of any organization at the turn of the century had had tens of thousands of members. Um, and so that organization was a powerful body in terms of codifying a place for Black women to get leadership training uh, and to get training to be um, public intellectuals. And by that, I mean intellectuals sort of engaged in the work of community building um, and engaged in the work of, of public education, not just for children, but also for their broader um, local and national communities. So the the club movement is in a lot of ways kind of a parallel one that was going on with regard to uh, women's suffrage, white women's suffrage movement at the t at the same time. That it was a, it was a place where women came together and did some organizing, as it were, um, but separately. Is that correct? sure? So. So at some level, yes. So the white suffrage movement really starts earlier um, and is primarily about suffrage. The General Federation of Women's Clubs, I think, emerges a bit later in the 18th century, even for white women. Um, and so so it's both. So then when black women begin to do the kind of club work, it's not necessarily an extension of their work with suffrage. So black women had always been a part of the suffrage struggle as well. But this is really a more local community based movement that is about black women, you know, now that, you know, black women are, you know, no longer enslaved and have some leisure time and some opportunities to move ideas in their 
their local communities. They organize themselves in all kinds of ways. And so in some ways it's connected to uh, the work of fraternal societies that had existed throughout the eight, throughout the 19th century um, that would do mutual aid work. Right. right. So, take, you know, so that, so it's more akin in some ways to that kind of work. I um, mean, I argue that along with Fanny Barrier Williams, one of the women that I talk about, she says the club movement really takes this, its impetus both from fraternal orders and from churches. So it, it sits in an interesting space where it's not a secret society and it's not a religious order, but it's interested in doing some of the same kinds of social work that, um, that those organizations had done, but in ways that were more accessible for general audiences of people. So. And and so then I wanted to take you into the next question I had, sure. Um, sure. which of course brings you to the the sort of your investigation or examination of Fanny Barrier Williams and of course the history of the National Association of Colored Women. Sure. Um, and what you talk about in the chapter um, that that you are also working towards, I think throughout the whole book, is to um, move beyond the kind of erasure that you note um, that a lot of sort of African-American women intellectuals have experienced within the academy. Um, but with regard to their, their, their role in the conversation, both intellectually and in terms of activism. Sure. Um, so look, I feel, I fell in love with Fanny Barrier Williams, uh, in this book. Um, I can understand she, why she's so smart and interesting. And so Fanny Barrier Williams is an, an, an elitist black lady. She's actually not from the South. Um, she, you know, grows up, you know, in the North, her folks, I think she has some roots in Washington, DC, but by the time we meet her in the 1890s, she's really at the center of the club movement, uh, in Chicago. She's one of the few black women who, enjoys a really wide kind of social life with white women uh, and is part of white women's clubs in Chicago that have very limited membership for black women. Uh, so she is one of the few that they really respect. Part of that is because she's very light skinned. She's also, uh, you, you know, highly cultured uh, because her family is, is sort of part of the old uh, black money elite. Um, so she's interesting in that way. And I think that that's part of the reason that she gets written off is because she is deeply elitist and it, you know, and she does not, um, and so she does not have the same sort of connections to the struggle of enslavement because her people had not been enslaved, uh, you know, down South. That being said, She's one of the top notch thinkers and one of the most prolific writers uh, in the period between about 1893 and maybe the second decade of the 20th, 20th century. Uh, and so she writes largely for publications that Booker T. Washington is putting out. And she's a Booker write, uh, which is also interesting. And so she's sort of in the clutches of Booker T. Washington, but she's also a really independent and interesting thinker. And so when I began to read Fanny Barrier Williams, um, during the research for this book, I stumbled upon an organizational history that she had done for the NACW, the National Association of Colored Women, uh, in 1900. And it looks like a simple organizational history on the outside. But when you really begin to dig deep, she's making all of these claims about how the National Association of Colored Women is the organized anxiety of women, uh, right, to ameliorate racial concerns, and as she says, to challenge our low social condition. Uh, and then she makes a claim about how all of the women in the National Association of Colored Women are really students of their own social condition uh, and that 
part of what they do there is they train these women to be able to study the problems in their communities and to address them. And then she says that the that the NACW becomes, uh, you know, she doesn't use the phrase feedback loop, but it becomes an important mode of connection for broad for other race leaders who want to have uh, a place to connect to the concerns of local communities. And so I realized as I was reading her that she was making lots of really important arguments about organizational life in the 19th century and about how Black publics were being formed and about where the places of Black political thought were being codified into a sort of systematic agenda. And she hadn't been credited as someone who was doing that kind of work. Uh, And so from reading Williams, I come to one of the core claims of the book, which is that we should see the National Association of Colored Women, about which a wide body of scholarship exists, um, we should see it as its own school of intellectual thought um, that is interested in questions of um, b- Black publics, interested in questions of how to build Black civil societies, interested in questions of Black safety, um, and is taking on issues like convict leasing very early, taking on public education. Um, and and really taking on and helping to build the infrastructure for a social welfare state for Black people uh, in the aftermath of Reconstruction. And she's really at the core of some of that work, and she's also the person that is sort of zooming out like a sociologist and studying how it all works together and how these institutional bodies shape Black life. And so so I was intrigued by her because everything that I read from her was a sort of, was a really kind of core theoretical argument about black people. And it wasn't that I always agreed with her. Um, but you know, one of the one of the ideas that she has that I think is really compelling and interesting and deserves further investigation. Uh, as she says in a piece that she writes in 1897, she's dealing with the elitism question and, and the fact that all of these, many of these club women are the part of the black elite that are able to get educated. And so there's the there are the cl- these class skirmishes because they often want poorer Black folks, working class Black folks, to perform a certain kind of social propriety. Uh, and that's hard to do because of lack of resources and perhaps lack of interest, right? <laughs> and um, other things to do with their time, like working. I mean, exactly. <laughs> that's right. And, and raising families and all of those things, right? And so there are always these sort of class skirmishes and a kind of underlying class tension that's happening. Uh, and so she says we need, and this is a quote from her, she says we need a new sociality. We need a new theory of social relationships, Right. And she says, you know, she says, look, society and sociality are not the same. And so for her, she uses society like today we would use class. And she says, basically, you can be in whatever kind of social class you want to be and you can have those relationships. But at, but because our fates are linked because of racism, we have to find a way to connect with each other that goes beyond the kind of challenges of class. And so she calls that a new sociality. So when I looked at that language, I thought, well, we have a whole body of scholarship now that is deeply invested in, in investigating socialities, right? And particularly <laughs> affect theorists are doing some of that kind of work. And I was like, well, here's a black woman from 1897 doing the same work. About, yeah, talking about sociality, right, as the basis for because and it's it's compelling because she doesn't. Um, She's not arguing that she should have racial racial unity with black people because of some innate shared kind of bloodline because she doesn't she didn't grow up that way. Um, And so because she grows up up north and her parents are like, you know, live in uh, Brockport, New York, that's really the origins of her family. 
uh, and then moved down to D.C. and then over to Chicago as the sort of gambit. And be, so because she doesn't have this connection to like uh, trans the transatlantic slave trade and the Deep South, she does not have she doesn't have an innate feeling of connection to black people, but she knows that there's the need for a political connection. And so she's trying to work that out. And so in this moment where we are deeply invested in what are the grounds upon which we build solidarities, what are the grounds upon which we build unity and coalition in order to move political agendas and make our lives safer, you know, she's one of the thinkers that I think um, ask us to think about what the nature of our social relationships are and how we come together when, you know, when when our connections are not innate and we didn't grow up in the same place and we don't have a similar, a sort of shared history in the same way. Um, and so I think she should be part of that conversation. And I think that she often, she is not a part of that conversation currently. And and one of the things that you note and that you just also mentioned, but also you note in the book is that to to sort of find some of these conversations, you have looked in unexpected places. As yes. you say, her history of the National Association of Colored Women was an unexpected place. And you note that there are other unexpected places where you find these conversations going on. Um, throughout your book that I find is really fascinating also because it also moves us as intellectuals and as, you know, theorists away from like, here's a book that somebody wrote in their study. Um, <laughs> as, right. you know, and we, we do that as academics, I understand, but, um, I, I found that, you know, sort of unearthing some of these ideas in places that one would not expect to be, um, an interesting point that you're making. Your next, indiv the next individual you pay attention to and you, you bridge this, I, I thought really beautifully from the discussion of Fanny Barrier Williams to Mary Church Terrell. Um, and so, it, and again, this is part of what you're mapping in the book as the intellectual genealogy, and you, you note how she inherited to some degree the mantle from Williams. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that sort of inheritance that transpired? Sure. So Mary Church Terrell, Fanny Barry Williams, and Anna Julia Cooper are really all colleagues. They're all advancing these agendas at the same time. So Fanny Barry Williams is a is a is a big club woman in Chicago when the National Black Women's Club movement gets created. Mary Church Terrell becomes the first president of the National Association of Colored Women. And she too is part of the black elite, although her parents had been enslaved in Memphis and her father was rumored to be the first black millionaire. Um, and so, so the two of them really have a kind of class connection, even though they don't have a regional connection and they get to know each other through club work. And so Mary Church Terrell is interesting because part of what I wanted to do with her in this book, so she, because she's the first black woman, I mean, the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, uh, and because she lives 90 years, there's really no major movement that happens from about 1890 to about 1954 when she passes away that she's not a part of. And so she has a history of activism in the club movement and then in World War One, and then in World War II uh, and then as part of civil rights. And so, but, but the thing about Mary Church Terrell that's interesting is that she is, and I call her this in the book, the denizen of, of Black respectability. I mean, in many ways, she is the epitome, the quintessence of what scholars think of when they think about respectability politics, because she's rich, uh, she's seen as very snooty and very privileged. Um, Ida B. Wells, 
um, had, you know, had a really contentious relationship with Mary Church Terrell because she felt like Mary Church Terrell snub, snubbed her uh, participation in one of the NACW conferences in the late 1890s, when really, according to Wells biographer Paula Giddings, it was it was Fanny Barrier Williams who had done that. Um, but but Mary Church Terrell has this sort of, you know, this reputation for being kind of um, both incredibly important, but also a little bit infamous, a little bit notorious uh, in terms of her class politics, because there's a moment where she like calls black poor women vicious and lowly and says like, I don't, you know, we have to, because our fates are linked, we have to take care of them and make sure that they're okay. And even though I would much prefer to not have to deal with them, we have to do it, right? Uh, and so she has these really kind of abhorrent class politics. And I think that that's one of the reasons that she gets ignored in these in these racial histories. But she's, but but that is simply egregious. I mean, she cannot be ignored. She's really one of the, you know, she's the first black woman to write, I argue in the book, a political memoir of her leadership as a race woman. So we have like slave narratives from black women uh, and even narratives of black women who are doing work in the, like in World War One that are far lesser known. But this is the first kind of political memoir from a black woman to be published where she says, this is my life as a racial activist doing this kind of work. Um, and so I, you know, and she, and in that book, to, to get back to a point you made earlier, one of the reasons I think it's important, um, her autobiography, A Colored Woman in a White World, which she self-publishes in 1940, it's a, it is a tedious tome. It is huge. It is, you know, it is a lot of like self-congratulation <laughs> about all of the famous people she has met. But there are these important moments of theorization that really matter. And so when she opens this book and she says, you know, I'm a colored woman in a white world. My story is not like that of a white woman. Right. Um, and my story is not like that of a colored man, because each of them only have one handicap. And by handicap, she means, you know, like sort of intersectional position, like race or gender. She says, but I have two. I have the double handicap of being of race and gender. That's an early theorization of what we understand today as intersectionality. Um, and it is used to frame her memoirs. It's used to frame her life. Uh, and so if we're going to have an intellectual genealogy of these ideas and where they emerge from, then we can't look in the, the sort of regular places for them. Um, but also the thing, the other thing I love about Mary Church Terrell, and I've talked to historians who have written about her and they don't particularly like her, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I like her because she's, because she's complicated, right? So I, I, what I think about her is that we probably wouldn't have been friends because I don't feel like I would have had the pedigree uh, <laughs> to be friends with her. But I think that, you know, so, so one of the things I talk about in the book is that even though she's sort of this buttoned up, respectable kind of figure, and she cares a lot about that, she also has this great love of dance. And so she talks about how from the time she's in college at Oberlin forward, that she's like sneaking out of the dorms at night to go dancing in the 1870s and 1880s. And that's quite scandalous yes. for someone who is so invested, right? And, and being respectable. And so she is one of the people that helped me to come to the title of the book, which is Beyond Respectability. Because I think that in this moment, we understand the problems with the respectability politic and the way that, you know, tying narratives about racial, you know, the treatment of black people to their behavior and saying that the way that you get the American, you know, government to treat you with dignity is to always be upstanding. 
in this moment, we sort of understand the problem with that kind of thinking. Whereas in her moment, even though I think it, it was more strategic than ideological, because of her class position, there was some deep investments in a, in a sort of notion of respectability. Um, but I but I also think that, that the story is more complicated and that when you then delve into Mary Church Terrell's life, you see this kind of this person who is mischievous and funny and who jokes at other people's expense around their kind of racial ignorance. Um, and so I think that even though she's working really hard, she's building organizations, um, she becomes pivotal to the landscape of civil rights uh, through a lot of the activism that she's doing in the 1950s, which is a lot of what I write about in the chapter. Uh, in the end, you know, she can't be contained by the kind of framework of respectability. Um, and and that's the thing that I want folks to know about the women in this book, is that even though they both help to kind of invent this ideology and propagate it hard, they too recognize the limits of this ideology in their own lives. Uh, and so they're trying to, to, to break out from the strictures of respectability and its sort of demands for a performance of social propriety um, in every which way way that they can. Um, and I think, and so it felt really important to go to the kind of main person that people think of when they have this conversation and say, even she wasn't as invested in this ideological position um, as we might think, not when we look at her life. Um, and so that's, that's some of the work that, that the book tries to do uh, around Mary Church Terrell and her life and giving shape and form to who these race women were when they weren't on the public stage, when they weren't on the platform and they weren't staging protests. They were uh, and out they dancing. Conferences. What were they doing? They That's were right. out Who dancing. Were That's right. They were out <laughs> dancing. They were out dancing or being shady or, you know, shading <laughs> white ladies or, <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, yeah. Um, and I just had a sidebar question to ask you because of the, that you, you brought up the issue of the title of the book, Beyond Respectability. And you, and you do sort of tease that out a little bit early on with regard to the difference between respectability and dignity. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that distinction that you make and that the women themselves are also struggling with? Sure. So I argue that dignity is inherent, that it's intrinsic, that it's a, a, a sort of innate sense of one's own worth and value, whereas respectability uh, is really um, invested in notions of propriety uh, and is invested in notions of presenting Black folks as being non-threatening, uh, largely to white citizens, right? Particularly if we're thinking about the 19th century. Uh, and so respectability is a demand to that if we look at Black people outwardly and they're performing, um, you know, these sort of dictates around proper social comportment and behavior, then they won't get killed. And dignity is, is far more difficult uh, because dignity sometimes will have you uh, presenting yourself as undignified because you have an intrinsic sense that you're a human being and that that should be valued and that it doesn't have anything to do with your social class or how you're dressed or how you speak, uh, but is your inherent right to be seen and recognized and treated as a human being. Uh, and so I argue that the misstep with respectability is most people think that um, some of the scholars who sort of have resistance around uh, our contemporary critique of respectability have that critique because they assume that what Black people are really trying to do is, is to have a bit of dignity. But what I find is that 
one of the challenges is that working class black folks that, that these folks are trying to police have a fundamental sense of dignity and that shows up in their desire to live and move about the world and do their thing and to not have to perform for white people uh, and to not have to sort of perform and prove that humanity for white people all of the time. And so I think the tension um, is that uh, respectability politics is about a kind of performance that you see um, Black women sometimes embracing and sometimes really tiring of it and tiring of its strictures uh, because they want to be be themselves and they don't necessarily want to perform these ideas, especially of ladyhood all the time and all of its dictates. So those are the, those. So I think it's high time for us to have a distinction so that we don't continue to equate respectability and dignity because, as I say in the book. Um, Whereas dignity is intrinsic and inherent, respectability is contingent on whether or not you perform it well that day, on whether or not the folks in power that you're performing it for see it and understand it um, and recognize it and then treat you accordingly. Um, and so very often folks who were performing respectability still didn't have their dignity recognized and respected. Yeah. And, and and I thought that was important in terms of your the understanding of the sort of the intersectional sort of roles that a lot of the women that you're analyzing have in their work and in their understanding of who they are as citizens. Sure. Um, and so in, in the next individual that you take up is Polly Murray. Um, yes. and, and again, she has a sort of a number of, um, sort of performances that she is not, um, conforming with. Yeah. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how she fits into the intellectual genealogy and geography that you are mapping with regard to sort of the intellectual thought of race women? Sure. So Polly Murray is the, you know, she is a slippery character. Uh, <laughs> she is very hard to kind of nail down. And so I'm happy to to note that there are many books about Polly Murray. Now, there are a few that have come out. There's a great new biography of her uh, called Jane Crow by Rosalind Rosenberg uh, that I would encourage people to read because in many ways, my, ch I mean, trying to do one chapter on Polly Murray is just so interesting. <laughs> so what I try to do in the book, um, one, I want to have a, one to have a figure who even in the moment of the early 20th century is challenging all of the categories that anchor this book. She's challenging narratives of race. She's challenging narratives of womanhood. So, so to be succinct, Polly Murray is born in 1910. Uh, she's from originally from Baltimore, but grows up in Durham, North Carolina and in the in her early 20s, um, she emerges in, in New York City where she's attending Hunter College um, as a as a queer black woman. She is she is masculine of center in terms of her performance. Um, she prefers relationships with women uh, and she's out to her family about that, even in the early 19 in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, and so she gives lie to this idea that black communities are more homophobic than other communities and that, that this homophobia has been longstanding. And she indicates for us that there's a far more sort of dynamic sense of black sexualities um, that, that are not just part of today, but that are part of the you know early 20th century as well. Um, and so one of the things that, so Polly Murray is, is, is interesting as an intellectual for a few reasons. One of the things that I focus on in this book is that because of her masculine of central performance, because of her queer gender identity, it creates a number of problems for her. So she's incredibly smart. Uh, she ends up going to law school and graduating 
graduating top of her class at Howard Law in the 1940s. But she deals with lots of sexism there because she's outspoken uh, and because she's not especially feminine. And so today we would actually call Polly Murray trans, uh, transgender or trans man. Um, much of her struggle in the early part of her life, in her 20s and 30s and even into her 40s a bit, uh, is that she felt like she was a man. And the science around transgender identity does not actually get invented until the 1950s. The term transgender is not invented until 1950. But in the 1930s and 40s, Polly Murray keeps on going to doctors and saying, you know, can you do exploratory surgery on me? Because I think, and I quote, she says, I have secreted male genitals. Um, and then she asked them to do hormone therapy. So she had done, she was a voracious, um, you know, student and researcher. And so she had done research to find that some that some experiments with hormone ther therapy were happening and that when men were given testosterone that it made them even more masculine and so she thought well cool give me testosterone it'll make me masculine too right um and so she went to doctors and tried to get them to do this hormone therapy on her in the late 1930s and early 1940s and it was absolutely unheard of um so one, she really is an interesting case study because she defies the gender categories that are available to her, even in the early 1900s. But at the same time, she's living in a moment of very high racial terror. And so she has lots to say about that. And so um, she is theorizing about um, civil rights. She So one of the things that I note in the book, which is part of the narrative about Polly Murray, uh, is that she really helps to pioneer the strategy for Brown versus Board of Education while she's a student uh, at Howard in the 1940s. Uh, but they don't tell her. So she writes a senior thesis where she argues that Brown versus Board should over that where she argues that Plessy v. Ferguson should be overturned because it's inherently unequal. Right. It's inherently a problem, which was not the strategy the civil rights um, you know, attorneys were using in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, so she so she writes that as her senior thesis. And then, you know, she graduates top of the class. They file it away. And so in 1954, um, after so in 1953, Mary Church Terrell brought a lawsuit in D.C. to desegregate the District of Columbia and won. Uh, she brought it with some other plaintiffs against a group of restaurants in D.C. And in 1954, on the on the wave of that decision, um, the Brown v. Board case comes up to the Supreme Court and the lawyers who argue it pull out Polly Murray's old senior thesis and say, oh, this is a novel idea. Let's try this. But then they don't tell her about it until 1964. <laughs> so, um, it's just one example of the ways that I mean, and so over and over again in her body of work, you will find these kind of key moments where she does these really pivotal things. So um, she does this around. So today, what we call womanist theology, mm -hmm. I argue that she's the pioneer of that uh, because she so Polly Murray becomes she she's like a shapeshifter. And over the course <laughs> of her life, she morphs. And so she she's a founder of the National Organization of Women. And then she gets mad with them and she quits um, like a year after it's founded. I don't talk about that as much in the book, but but she is, uh, you know, but she is a founder. So she's an early feminist theorist. Um, she, you know, lives in an out lesbian relationship for the duration of her life. Um, and then in the 1970s, she decides that she 
really so after like science and and legal work had not really brought her fulfillment and hadn't really helped her advance her concerns she says well cool i'll turn to i'll turn to religion and so she becomes the first black woman ever to be ordained as an episcopal priest in 1976 and as part of her work to prepare for that role she does an mdiv in the early 1970s and the mdiv is her comparing feminist theology i.e the theology of white feminists with black liberation theology and today that's a whole field of study called womanist theology you know and and she is really the pioneer of the of of that kind of field of work even though she typically is not taken up as such um so she, she, I mean, she, she clearly, again, is, you know, sort of very much in the zone that you're looking at where she's, she is the, the founder or instigator of any number of intellectual traditions, right. um, and, and sort of lines of thought that have become, you know, sort of foundational in lots of fields. It's not, you know, not just with regard to sort of the role of African Americans, um, or the, the, the sort of understanding of African Americans, but also, as you say, with regard to feminism and, and questions of gender identity, um, and so forth, which is fascinating. Um, and, and certainly, you know, again, she's, she's a little bit different than some of the other women that you look at, but again, she's doing the same kind of work. Sure. Um, Um and one of the and it's important to say so one of the reasons I read her in the genealogy of those women is so she claims for instance Mary Church Terrell as one of her mentors because they meet briefly so Mary Church Terrell lives in DC Polly Murray is a you know law student at Howard in the 1940s and some of the earliest activism that happens so Polly Murray and and and, and undergraduate students at Howard come together in the 1940s during the during World War II and they say well our brothers are off fighting a war and so what can we do at home? And so they go down to U Street in Washington, D.C., and they start doing sit-ins at the restaurants in the 1940s, and they desegregate them for a brief period. And so when we tell the civil rights history of the desegregation movement and we talk about Greensboro and the sit-ins of 1960, well, these students were doing those sit-ins in the 1940s, and there's evidence in the archive that they had gotten what they called the stool sitting technique from students who were at other HBCUs in the 1940s who were strategizing and thinking about that technique. And so as part of that, when Mary Church Terrell then comes along later and, you know, like in the next decade and brings her desegregation suit against D.C., she's doing it largely on the strength of efforts that Polly Murray and others had begun at Howard. And so Many years later, Polly Murray talks about the race women luminaries that shaped her life. Uh, and so Mary Church Terrell and a lot of these club women are part of the genealogy in which she sees herself. Um, and so that's also the reason why I'm interested in saying that it's an intellectual genealogy, because all of the women, you know, they, they do sort of meet each other and know each other. So Fanny Barrier Williams and Anna Julia Cooper and Mary Church Terrell know each other. And then Mary Church Terrell knows Polly Murray. And then Polly Murray knows some of the women who emerge in the, in the last chapter of the book. And so there are actual physical connections between these women, too, and moments where they get to trade um, ideas, um, you know, that shape their lives. Even though they, you know, even though Polly Murray would say that her womanhood and her fraught relationship to it uh, and the fact that she she doesn't actually want to be called a woman and does not see herself as that for most of her life. Um, you know, even though she would say those things and in that way she would be really different, the, ter- the sort of racial justice traditions in which Mary Church Terrell is a part of, or Mary Church Terrell, 
Terrell is a part of. Pauli Murray absolutely sees herself as as a continuation of that tradition. Uh, and so that's why it was really important to put her in this book and to say uh, that, um, yeah, to say that even though she has a fraught relationship to notions of race and blackness and and the ways in which they feel kind of masculinist and hardcore to her and even though she doesn't fully identify as a woman she wants to be a part of the work of helping black people to to get free and to have racial advancement and and so in in the last section of the book you have sort of you have a conclusive conclusive chapter and then you have an epilogue and and i thought that you you know you brought in again some other women ponchat ponchita Pierce, um, in the, in the last, in the final chapter. And you have this sort of question about the nature of black womenhood in the public sphere. Um, you know, sort of as you're, you're sort of concluding the book, talking about the fact that there, there's now recognition in the academy for, you know, black feminist thought. Um, but that the sort of the broader question that you've been interrogating throughout with regard to, sort of black women intellectual engagement um, is not just about, you know, being a thinker. It's also a lot of these women were doing activism or engaging in the public sphere in in a lot of important ways. Um, But then you sort of interestingly sort of weave into the epilogue, Mm -hmm. the question of, you know, continued activism work um, by Patrice Khan Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi in creating the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And so can you just talk a little bit about the sort of these most, almost two concluding chapters um, <laughs> and and the women that you highlight in them and the kind of work that they're doing in a more contemporary sort of setting and situation. Sure. So I think the, the arguments in the last part of the book are really about how these debates are cyclical. And so in the 1960s, after all of this kind of brought this really rich history that I've recounted in the first part of the book, you see that there again. in the, so in the 1960s, I begin with a, a brief story about how Ebony magazine runs this article called The Problems of the Negro Woman Intellectual exactly. uh, in the summer of 66. Uh, and essentially, I say that even though there is now 75 years of activism, around black women's issues, there is still this question, there is still this um, anxiety about the role that black women intellectuals have to play and and how they affect the black freedom struggle. And so I try to get at what that's about. And I say that ultimately, uh, many of these battles are about sort of that, that when we see great moments of racial upheaval, we see tensions over gender performance and gender role identity. Uh, and so this is why folks are never quite clear about how to take black women intellectual seriously. Uh, and so I do that during the civil rights period, um, just again, to show that even though we can, we can look in 1892 and seeing black women saying, you know, people, we, you know, no one is studying us and studying the things that matter to us. And this is why we need a movement. And then you look again in the 1960s and again, and early 1970s, and you see women like Tony K. Bambara having to make the same claim over again. And then as I was writing this book, um, um, the Black Lives Matter movement emerged. Uh, and you then see uh, this moment in 2014, in the fall of 2014, where Alicia Garza takes it to the pages of the Feminist Wire, which is an online feminist magazine, and says, um, you know, 
our work is being erased. And so we want to write a history of how we came to this moment that centers the creation, the, the work of black women. And as I read it, I thought, well, we keep on doing this. You know, I can look 50 years ago and see it. I can look 75 years before that and see it. And so what is it about not taking black women seriously as thinkers and theorists who, who build the, the sort of intellectual foundations for movements um, that keeps on creating this problem. And so it felt really important to me to show not just that there was a tradition that needed to be recouped, but I think that there, one of the things I was writing against, you know how when you're writing, sometimes you're writing against critics in your head. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I felt like I was writing against critics in my head who would be saying things like, We've had black feminism in the academy for 30 years. What are you talking about? This is not a problem. This doesn't happen, right? We don't actually believe you when you say that people don't take black women seriously as thinkers. And so when Alicia wrote that piece, I thought, here we are again. And I think that the erasure she was pointing to was absolutely correct. Uh, and so, you know, it, it provided a really interesting moment and in some ways a, a kind of heartbreaking moment because you know, we see black women doing what they're always doing, which is saying they're trying to kill us again. They're trying to make conditions unbearable for us again. And we have to figure out a way for this not to happen. And you also see the broader conversation being about the kind of contributions of black men um, and, and their thought processes and what they're doing. And so um, so it became a, a pin, you know, in the, you know, in the issue, a place to sort of park by my pin that I wasn't, you know, particularly looking for and that I would hope we'd be in a different place. Um, but, you know, but we're not. And so I think it's really important for us to say over and over again that the concerns which have sustained black women's movement building and intellectual work always pivot upon one you know, what can we do to make conditions better for black people? How can we help black people to get free? But also when we do that, can we make sure to include black women and girls? Uh, and what kinds of things do we need to know? Not just what kind of things do we need to do? That's the distinction I'm making in some ways between the sort of activism piece and the kind of intellectual piece. It's not just what kind of things do we need to do or build, but what kinds of things do we need to know so that we can ad actually address the conditions that black women and girls are facing. And I think that the the epilogue is 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 a kind of like a bookend, you know, to your to your study and also to the to the questions that you're raising with regard to not only what what can we do in terms of activism, as you say, but also, you know, who has thought some of these thoughts before and do we have to constantly reinvent the wheel as That's it right. were um, uh, that that African-American women have been thinking about this and and putting it down and writing about it and having conversations and engaging with it for over 100 years. Right. Um, and yet there is there seems to be, as your book notes, sort of perpetual erasure of a lot of that engagement. Um, yeah. And I think that your book does a great job sort of highlighting the contributions because it's fascinating in that regard. It's it's a really rich intellectual history um, that I learned a lot from. So I appreciate it and I thank you for it. Thank um, you. And so I want to know what you're working on now so I can get you back on this new books and um, political science podcast when you finish your next project. So what is it? Yes. So I just finished a new book called uh, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower, cool. uh, which will be out uh, in February with St. Martin's Press. Uh, and so it is a more it is more in the tradition of public writing of 
say bell hooks um, and maybe Audre Lorde, but it takes black feminist concerns and does political commentary around relationships around uh, the American nation state and black women's relationship to it. Uh, and it uses some of my own personal kind of stories to, to do that uh, and is more reflective of the public writing that I've been doing uh, since 2013 as well. So. Well, I look forward to reading it and hopefully having you back on to talk about it sure. um, after it comes out in February. That'll be great. Brittany thank Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today to speak about Beyond Respectability, the Intellectual Thought of Race Women. And where can people pick up a copy of your book? Uh, they can pick it up from the University of Illinois Press on their direct, direct site, or they can pick it up at Amazon. Great. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. 